I'm going to talk tonight about the sin of partiality or the sin of prejudice. And I'd like to read beginning at chapter 2, verse 1 of the little epistle of James. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes, and say, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down by my footstool, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which He promised to those who love Him? But you have dishonored the poor man is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you've been called? If, however, you're fulfilling the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing, you are in the process of committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law, the whole law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Dave Roper was a, an attorney, a, um, a young attorney in a law firm in Dallas, Texas. And every Thanksgiving season, uh, the president of the law firm would give all of the guys a turkey for their Thanksgiving. And Dave wasn't married, and he didn't do a lot of cooking, and he always went to his parents or to friends for Thanksgiving, so he really didn't want the turkey. But he had to take it. It was one of those things where, you know, they had a big meeting and all the partners of the law firm were there, and they passed out the turkeys, and everybody told how great it was that they were working in this law firm and just how lucky they were to be a part of it. And so he, he took the turkey, and, and so it came a Thanksgiving not long ago, and uh, as usual, they gave a turkey, and they had it wrapped in a sack, a paper sack. 
Well, it was just about time for, the, for quitting time, and Dave was getting ready to go home, and uh, some of his friends came in and got his turkey. And they substituted in its place a paper mache turkey in a same kind of paper bag, same paper bag, I think, and it was weighted, and it, and it, was, it had the sh shape, it was just like the turkey, frozen turkey that he had gotten from his boss. And Dave got on the bus and was uh, going out to his uh, condominium and was riding along there, and this guy was sitting beside him, and he was telling him this sad story about that he was in Dallas, out of work, and uh, had nothing to eat, and his children weren't going to have Thanksgiving, and Dave was just overwhelmed with this compassion. And he thought, I'm going to give my turkey to this poor guy. He doesn't have a thing to eat. And then he thought, now that would be an insult to the guy. Just to, you know, he's probably not looking for charity. And so he asked him, how much money do you have? And the guy said, I've got $2 to my name. And Dave said, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. He said, I've got a turkey in this sack that I don't really need. And he said, I'm going to sell this turkey to you for $2. And the guy was just, just so happy, you know. And he got the turkey, felt just like, you know, a turkey. And he gave him $2. And, and they got off the bus stop and, uh, and left. Well, the next Monday, when Dave got back to the office... The guys were just dying to know, you know, what happened. And, you know, he didn't know anything about it. He'd never opened the sack. And they were just waiting for Dave, you know, to jump on them. And finally, when he didn't say anything, um, they asked him about the turkey. And he said, well, I sold it to a guy on the bus. They said, oh, no. So that was a fake turkey. So that was a paper mache turkey. And Dave was just, you know, ruined by it. And they got on this bus line, they got on the bus hoping they'd find this guy, and they got on a, all up and down the bus line trying to find the fellow to whom they sold this paper mache turkey. Couldn't find him. And Dave says, somewhere in Dallas, there's a guy who has a prejudiced opinion about me because he's judged me on the basis of that one encounter. That's the whole theme of what I want to talk about tonight because what James is dealing with in this second chapter is that you cannot determine a person's heart in a one-time encounter, in an initial impression. Now he's not saying that we're to not to have discernment and he's not talking about blind love and he's not talking about blacks marrying whites. That's not it at all. He's dealing with matters of initial impression. He's dealing with matters of first-time, one-time encounter judgments based upon that one-time encounter. Now, if you'll follow your outline, you'll find, first of all, a principle that is established in verse 1 a principle that is stated, and this is the principle. As he begins in verse 1, my brethren, he, he, he's talking to us, to Christians, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. And the principle is this, that faith in Christ and partiality are incompatible. 
Can I state that principle again? One's faith in Christ and his partiality or prejudice are incompatible. They are mutually exclusive. And he's talking here about, in verse 1, about the glorious Lord Jesus, the Christ of glory, that is to say that Christ is the true glory and a Christian is the last person who is to be impressed by the sham of social status. One's faith in Christ and favoritism are incompatible. Now let me give you the meaning of the statement or the meaning of the word favoritism. It's a word that comes from two Greek words and it means to receive by face, F-A-C-E, to receive by face. That is, to, to receive one or to judge one on the basis of face value alone. It means to judge one or receive one on the basis of what you see on the outside, on the basis of the external face value. Now, there are only three other times that that word is used in the New Testament, favoritism, and each time it is associated with God, and in each case it suggests that the Father does not show favorites, does not show favoritism. That is to say, God does not judge a man on the basis of what he sees at face value. He does not judge one on the basis of what he sees externally. God looks on the heart. And what happened when this man got off the bus and found later this paper mache turkey, he must have judged Dave Roper on the basis of what he saw up front. And all the time his heart was really right and full of compassion and mercy and love for the man. God does not show favoritism. Now the principle is illustrated in verses 2, 3, and 4. Follow with me. He's saying, let me illustrate what I'm talking about when I, when I establish the principle that favoritism and one's faith in Christ are incompatible. Let me illustrate it. Let me show you how it happens, and then let me show you why it's wrong. So hang with me while we look at that. Verse 2, that kind of thing illustrated. For if a man comes into your assembly, now I want you to picture this, this kind of picture. Everybody's in the, in the assembly, in the synagogue, in the house of worship, in the house of God. And there comes a man to worship. In fact, there, come, there are two men who come that he mentions. One man comes dressed in fine apparel and his hands are loaded with rings. Now rich men in those days oftentimes wore clothes that had uh, sequence on them, kind of like uh, you see on Grand Ole Opry, you know, are, are jewels on their clothes, and they wore rings on every finger except the middle finger. And the richer you were, the more rings you had on your fingers. So he said, here comes a man in church, you see him, he steps inside the assembly, and he's got beautiful clothes, and he has many rings on his fingers. Or, he's the 
president of the corporation, the leading corporation in town, or he's the captain on the football team and has the T-bird, the or he's the uh, head cheerleader on the pep squad. And then he said, there's another man who steps inside the assembly and he's dressed in dirty clothes. Really the word is the clothes of a beggar. He comes right off of the street. Like the guy who came in not long ago and sat down over here and got up and left during the sermon, told the guys at the back, who does he think he is? Talking about me. Who does he think he is? Billy Graham? You know, that kind of a guy right off the street said, why, the guy's been preaching an hour, and uh, he was talking about me, and he left. Sitting, sitting, sitting back here on the back. Right off the street, a beggar. And so the usher sees both of these men standing there waiting to come in. That's the illustration, and you get the picture. Now, notice what he says happens. Verse 3. And you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and you say, you sit here in a good place and you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down, squat down by my footstool, over, stand in room back there and, and the footstool in some place, times were the, were the kind of the uh, uh, little benches that kind of line, line the outside of the synagogue worship place. You, you squat down over there against the wall and don't let anybody see you if you can help it. You take this chief place, he says to the rich man, and there were chief places in the synagogue. Jesus talks about that in Matthew 23 when he talks about the Pharisees. He said they love to sit in the places of honor and in the chief seats in the synagogue. They were places right down at the front reserved for the, for the, for the noble, reserved for notoriety. Now he says, you say to the man, the rich man, you come sit down in the chief place. He says to the man right off the street, somewhere back here you find you a place to stand out of the way. Now there's not really necessarily anything right or wrong with you know, being rich. There's nothing really right or wrong about being poor. What would be an evil motive was saying to the rich man, you take the chief place here, the place of honor, and to the man who's not dressed so well, you sit back at the back or squat down against the wall. I don't know what the evil motive, perhaps... He set the rich man there so, because he thought he might get something out of him later. Or maybe it was because someone told him to do that. The usher was not able to see beyond the clothing. And he says it's because of an evil motive. What is the evil motive? I don't really know, but I do know this. Listen carefully. If there is one place where there is, there is no distinction and no discrimination of any kind, it ought to be in God's house. I want to say it again. First amen I've had in six months. 
if there is any place where there is to be no distinction or no discrimination, it ought to be in God's house. It's a tragedy when a person comes to the church and feels that he doesn't belong there. Now, I don't know how you feel about it, but I want to go on record tonight, and I hope that you feel the same. If you don't, you and I have got some problems. If a man doesn't have shoes, he belongs here just like the man who has them. If a man only has overalls to wear, he's as welcomed here, as far as I'm concerned, as the man with a three-piece suit. If a person is divorced, they're as welcomed in this place of God as the person who is happily married. Now, some don't feel that way all the time. What a tragedy. If a person is black, he has as, he has as much right to be in the house of God as the white man. What a Tragedy for a person to come and feel like they don't want me there. Regardless of his color or his status or his position. Do you feel like that you have a tendency toward the charismatics? Do you feel like you have a tendency toward the charismatic faith? You belong here also. I'm convinced that there is nothing that ought to discriminate in the house of God those who are not just exactly like us. You having problems paying your bills? Yes, you belong here too. I'm one of you. How terrible it feels to be rejected. And at the heart and basis of the conformity among young people, is the tremendous fear of rejection to feel like they don't belong. That's why people drink when they don't want to drink. They feel if they don't, they won't belong. That's why people party. You know, I, I hear about college students, you know, who, who you trust and depend on for leadership, partying. That's why they do that. Because they feel if they don't, they'll be rejected. And there's no blow as severe as the feeling, I don't belong. If, you, if you've ever heard baseball, know anything about baseball at all, you've heard the name Elston Howard. He, was, he played for years for the, for the New York Yankees. One of my favorite players, a black catcher. And he got old and his reflexes weren't as good. They traded him to Boston, the Boston Red Sox. A, um, a reporter for the New York Yankees talked about how that crushed Elston Howard and made this statement, quote, It wasn't that Elston was traded from the Yankees to the Red Sox that really hurt him. It was the fact that he had spent so many years with the Yankees it hurt him when he discovered that he was no longer wanted. Now let me say something 
right at the heart of, of us all as far as youth is concerned. Young people, we are the worst about this. There are kids in this town, I'm sure of this, I've talked to some, who do not feel they can come to First Baptist Church and be accepted. They do not feel that they can come to First Baptist Church and belong. The church is the company of the doomed and the damned redeemed. And everybody is just alike. Let me read you a statement by Ernest Campbell. He said, God in His mercy sets the rejected ones of earth into a community in which each receives the other. Oh, I love this where each receives the other as all have been received by God. The climate of an authentic church is controlled by the love of God. Acceptance is not conditioned upon whether someone qualifies by the size of his purse, the impressiveness of his achievements, or his moral rectitude. The church that God intended is a community where each receives the other as all have been received by God. He loved us and gave Himself for us. As He has loved us, so ought we to love one another. The invitation is always out to come as you are. Hang it out on the door there, will you? And I'm convinced that when we become that kind of fellowship, they're going to be knocking the doors down to get here because people are drawn by the feelings of acceptance. Right? Now, lest I get carried away, let's go to the principle explained why it is wrong to show partiality. Now, remember this. I'm not talking here about it has nothing to do with intermarriage and all those things. That's another sermon. That's another problem. I'm talking about showing partiality in the family, in the, in the assembly of God in the church. Now the principle explained. Why is partiality, why is it wrong to judge one on the basis of what's up front, on the basis of what you see in the face or in the clothes? Number one, it's wrong because of a theological reason. Verse 5. Now write this down. This will be something you can keep. The theological reason it is wrong is this. Because partiality or prejudice is inconsistent with God's method of operation. It's inconsistent with God's method of operation. Look at verse 5. Did not God choose the poor? Now there's something that reminds me uh, to look back over. This little bell rings in my mind. To look over at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Would you flip back to that passage with me? 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 
Verse 25. Now hold your place there in James because we're going to come right back in just a minute. And we're going to hurry lest the pie melts. Verse 25. Now he says, Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. This is verse 25 of chapter 1, 1 Corinthians. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen the things that are not, that He might nullify the things that are, that no man should boast before God. God's method of operation is to choose the ragtags. Thank God for that. Now look at chapter 6 of that same 1 Corinthian letter and look at verse 9. What a dynamite verse, passage. Or do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Verse 9, 1 Corinthians 6. Now he's not saying if you're guilty of these sins that means you won't go to heaven. He's saying he, he talks about the kingdom of God as something you inherit. It's not something you earn. And if you don't have belief or faith in Christ and repentance, this is the way you're going to act. He says, Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, partiers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. And verse 11. And such were some of you. Now he's writing to the church at Corinthians, this dynamite church in the city of Corinth, and he's describing this list of these, the worst sort of human beings, homosexuals and partiers and thieves and murderers and fornicators and adulterers, and he says, and such were some of you. Now what does that mean? It means that the church in Corinth was made up of the low class that was redeemed by God. For the strategy of God in this world is to gain out of the earth the ragtags, redeem them, and set them on fire. That's the, that's the basis of it. So it's theologically wrong. Secondly, it's logically wrong to discriminate and show partiality. Back to James, verse 6. He says it's logically wrong because it's not the poor folks that's dragging you out and taking you to court. It's not the poor, for, poor folks that's making life hard for you. Why well, he says, by honoring this man just on the basis of the jewels on his fingers, you're honoring, you're exalting nobility. And nobility in that case was the chief enemy of the church. Now I don't know how, I don't know what, what you see in that, but you know it just occurred to me not long ago that we make heroes out of people just on the basis 
of their standing or status. It, you know, and we get people in the church, and we get up, let them get up. We we ask them to get up and give testimony, just because of their social and economic status. We make heroes out of those folk that have a low-grade moral temperature. And it's blasphemy, really, isn't it? Look at the biblical reason, verse 8. He says, because of the royal law of love. He says, you say you love your neighbor as yourself. If so, why are you showing partiality? What a question. You say you love your neighbor as yourself. Why are you showing partiality? I don't know whether you read the book Black Like Me by Griffin or not. Did, you, did any of you read that book, Black Like Me? This man had tremendous, you know, many friends, had position, had, had acceptance. I don't know how he did it, but he disguised himself as black. Um, shaved his head and, um, and, and actually, I don't know how you could do that, but he, he must have had those physical characteristics to begin with. Like the guy I went to Hardin-Simmons with, that was back when, you know, they, didn't, you, you, they couldn't eat with us. And his name was Chester Lissy. He was from white parents, but he looked just like a black guy. And he had more trouble. He was a football player getting to go where the football players went. And this guy, was, he had acceptance, he had respect, etc. And then he, to write this book, he took the position of a black man. And just like that, he was rejected. How can you say that you love your neighbor if you show partiality? We put so many reservations on our love, don't we? We're like the guy who said, Paul's girl is rich and haughty. My girl is poor as clay. Paul's girl is young and pretty. My girl looks like a bale of hay. Paul's girl is smart and clever. My girl is dumb but good. You think I'd trade, but you think I'd trade my girl for Paul's? You bet your life I would. <laughs> it set you up, doesn't it? We put so many, so many uh, reservations on our love. Finally, what is the principle applied? Stay right with me, and then I'll be through. I think we can take something home here in verses 12 and 13. The principle applied, number one, are you with me? Let the Scripture be your standard of how you treat people and not your heritage. I must say that again. Let the Scripture be the standard, not your heritage, as to how you treat people. Verse 12. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. Number two, let love be your law. Let love be your law. Unlike the Pharisees and the Orthodox Jews, the Christian is not a man 
whose life is governed by the pressures of a whole series of rules and regulations which are externally imposed upon him. He is governed by the inner compulsion of love. He is self-governed and self-directed by the love which resides in his heart. He follows the right way of love to God and love to men, not because of some external loss compulsion or because he's frightened of punishment. He loves God and loves his fellow man, and that's the way he treats them. He's governed by the law of love. Now, young people, adults, do the people who are different from us, do they really feel that we love them? Finally, let mercy be your message. Communicate mercy, verse 13. For judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over partiality or judgment. One of my, one of my favorite, favorite stories is found in the 8th chapter of John's Gospel. And there they are outside the temple and Jesus is talking to them and teaching them. And all of a sudden, they bring her up there, a woman caught in the very act of adultery. And men have used her, and the Pharisees are going to use her to trap Jesus. They want to catch him in something. And so they say to Jesus, what are you going to do about the law of Moses? She's caught in the act of adultery. Now, the Mo Moses' law says stone her to death. What do you say? You know the story. Somebody's got a marvelous sermon called Plan B. Plan A is stoner. Plan B is let mercy be your message. And so Jesus rode in the ground, and you know how it went. And finally, when he stood up and looked at her, he said, Go and sin no more, because I don't condemn you. A man was sitting in my office not long ago and in a moment of repentance and honesty he poured out his heart, out of his heart, a confession of sin, terrible sin. And he said to me, you know, the Bible says that I don't deserve, I, I'm disqualified. 
And I said, yes. And the Bible says, neither do I condemn you. Go and from this point onward, never sin. You know, this town of ours, have you felt the pulse of the people of your town lately? Those people out there are hurting. And they're needing somebody who will say, it doesn't matter to me if you've got money or not. It doesn't matter to me if you are divorced or not. It doesn't matter to me if you're black or not. It doesn't matter to me if you're Iranian, Muslim or not. I love you. And I want you to be a part of a fellowship that says, come just as you are. Now, watch it carefully. For it is in that kind of acceptance and love that lives then are changed. That's why Jesus could say to the woman, go and sin no more because she, could, she might reach that plateau of sinlessness now because she found somebody who accepted her just like she was. You see, that makes sense? Let's bow our heads. I feel impressed tonight to invite you to respond in some way because I feel like there needs to be some kind of invitation. I wasn't planning on doing it, but I feel charged up to do it right here. And maybe you'll want to come as the organist and pianist plays softly after we've had prayer. Father, we confess, from this pulpit I confess, that the love of the unlovely is so hard. To show mercy to the undeserving is so difficult. Help me to be governed by the law of love. Help me to accept others. Help me, Father, to love as you love us, to accept as you've accepted us, to forgive as you've forgiven. And help that this fellowship of brothers and sisters might literally from young to old call out to a hurting world you belong here we want you we love you and if there is that in us that is not able to do that I pray that you'll bring it to pass accomplish what's necessary to make it a reality I pray in Jesus name in the spirit of prayer now Heads are bowed and you're at your seat. You might just want to slip out and come if God leads you to come.